0: Let's stand up and sing together. Welcome, welcome. Glad that you're here this morning. It has been an interesting morning. We got here and the power went on the fritz, which means the air conditioners went off. So we were sweating in more ways than one. But um, ever came out, turned it on, but a lot of us are maybe a little bit uh, harried this morning. So let's all do this. Let's take a deep breath. Breathe air deep into your lungs, and then breathe out slowly. And let's bow and um, just take a posture of reverence here for a moment as we begin. Just keep taking in deep breaths and breathing out as we try to signal to our bodies that we're leaving behind the busyness of the week and we're entering now into sacred space and sacred time, into this place of Sabbath, which is just about delight, just the gift of being alive. So here as we begin, let's just spend a few moments um, standing together in silence in the presence of God. Lord, we give you thanks for the day and we're grateful for our lives, grateful to be here in this place together as we turn our um, hearts and our minds toward you and as we gather to tell the story once again of our God, our creator, our sustainer and your history with our people and the ways we get you right and get you wrong and the struggle to be human. And so we just, we join with this old story and we turn our our minds toward you this morning and we ask you to come to us to send your spirit into this place and to wake us up and give us new courage for the living of our lives in this time and in this place. Pray especially for those who are hurting this morning that they would feel a sense of your um, presence and your love for all of us we just confess that we need you and we need help with our lives and and so we submit ourselves to you in this time ask you to come to us, speak to us stay with us this morning we ask in the name of the Father, Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen
1: with our, uh, for
0: our call to worship
2: my daughter back there, so no pressure, but we're all counting on you, Soph. Okay, here we go. We rejoice and praise your holy name today, O Lord, because you have kept us from a destructive path. We give thanks because your word gives us hope, and we we'll reflect on your word at all times. You are the source of deep-seated faith, and our spirits, are refreshed in your presence, amen.
3: This reading is from the book of Exodus. Moses did everything just as the Lord had commanded him. In the first month of the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was set up. Moses set up the tabernacle. He laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set up the court around the tabernacle and the altar and put up the screen at the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the Israelites would set out on each stage of their journey. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day that it was taken up, for the, cl- for the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in the cloud by night, before the eyes of all the house of Israel at each stage of their journey. The word of the Lord. Please stand and continue worshiping with us.
2: Let the king of my heart be the mountain where I ride, the fountain I drink from, oh he is my song. Let the king of my heart be the shadow. Good morning all right
1: as we come to prayers of the people we'll begin with a time of silent confession we invite you to spend the next few moments in silence praying and confessing to god that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Lord, hear our prayer and let our cries come to you. For the church universal, its members, and the mission of God, for too long we have forced our own words as commands, calling them anointed. We have judged and condemned and called it discipleship. Abba, Father, we need you so much. We remember, may we remember, we are each cherished and called beloved. Give us the bravery to be a community of warmth and authenticity with doors and arms that are truly open. May we create a space where all are truly welcome, where all can come as they are, vulnerable, broken, thirsty, exhausted, uncertain, lost, and hurting. May we nurture that space to be a tender refuge of comfort and rest. For the welfare of the world, we pray that you stand between us and the slippery slope of cynicism, apathy, scarcity, fear, and despair. Give us clarity and discernment to trust in your eternal presence. Illuminate our hearts to encounter the peace only you can bring. Emmanuel, you are with us. Your peace rises above our knowledge and understanding. Focus our vision and tune our wandering hearts to your gracious presence permeating the atmosphere. For the nation and our city, May our leaders have the courage to awaken to greater humility, greater consciousness, greater care and concern for one another. May they see you in the faces of each citizen and may our neighbors see you in one another. May our hope be placed in what truly matters and what lasts beyond this world. Loving Father, take our hearts in your hands and shape us to reflect your will, not ours. Help us each day to stand for love, for healing, and for the diverse unity of the body of Christ and of all creation. May we be one. We pray for those who are hurting this morning, in body or in spirit, those who are sad or lonely or sick, battling depression, anxiety, grief, chronic pain or addiction. For those whose hearts are heavy and broken, those that are discouraged, heartsick, and furious with injustice and oppression, those wanting to turn away or numb themselves to the suffering, may they find strength in you. May the peace of the Lord surround their minds and bring their hearts, their minds and hearts bringing healing, refuge, and hope. May they be comforted with tenderness and feel the beauty of Emmanuel. May we all be reminded that even when we do not have the words, you know the longing and groans of our hearts. We offer our prayer together with all the holy names of God. For the prayers we are not yet ready to voice. Lord, hear our prayer and let our cries come to you as we pray the words you taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So just a reminder that we don't pass the basket, but you're welcome to give online. If you go to redemptionchurchkc.com, um, there are some prompts um, you can do it one time or it can be recurring. You just put some information. Um, it's pretty easy and it is a nice way to just get it done. Um, I like it. <laughs> um, so would you please stand and join us to continue worshiping?
2: shepherd I won't be wanting I won't be wanting He makes me Though I
0: and in their classes for the teaching time. If you're new with us this morning, please feel free to find the person in the back of the room. Katie's back there, and she's holding up a red clipboard. If you don't know where your kids need to go, she can help you find the place. Um, if your kids know where to go, you can just, like, boot them out of the aisle, and they'll run off, and it'll be fine with everybody. Um, but feel free to, if, if you're new, feel free to follow them down and kind of make sure you're comfortable with everything until and, and you come back in here. Um, but if you're near your child, would you put your arms around them? Let's, um, let's bless them before they go. <clears throat> Lord, we ask you to bless our children. Um, we know that before they belong to us, they belong to you. But their lives are just so precious to us. And um, so as we dismiss them to go be together and with their teachers, we ask that you would go with them. That as they read the scriptures, they wouldn't just see far off names and faces and trivia about the Bible, but that they would get a sense of this great story that's still going on, and they would see how their lives can be a big part of it. And um, more than anything, we, we pray that they would never know a single moment that they don't feel part of the people of God. And toward that end, We bless them and ask you to bless them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we pray, as we always do, that you would bind our hearts together as a church. Teach us to love one another and the world around us for your sake. Amen. All right, you guys, go have fun. Everyone else, say hello to a few folks standing nearby. Guys, if you want to find a seat, we're going to get started. <clears throat> it's good to be back again. Sorry I had to miss last week. I, if you can believe it, in two decades at Redemption Church, that's the first time I've ever had to miss because I was sick. Can you believe that? Like, knock on wood. but um, I got COVID. After three years of dodging it, it caught me. I was asleep at the wheel. And it happened, and it was horrible for about 24 hours or a little more. And then thank God for the vaccination because my body knew what to do and fought it off, and I got better quick. But thanks for your prayers, and thanks to Mandy for writing a sermon real fast. Like, literally, she landed from vacation on Wednesday night and then made that happen. So nicely done, Mandy Hill. Um, Yeah, yeah, feel free. So our tradition at Redemption Church for the last, I think, eight or nine years has been to focus primarily on the Old Testament during the summers. I actually um, try to preach from the Old Testament half of the the year, and there are many reasons for this, but one of the big ones has to do with what I see as a kind of problem with the way that we are taught to read the scriptures. Um, Most Protestants, um, evangelicals, charismatics, really virtually all the major denominations in that make up American Christianity we read the Bible through what you might could call a Pauline lens Pauline is a word that refers to the writings of the Apostle Paul and most Protestants were taught to read the Bible through the lens of the Apostle Paul's influence um, especially the book of Romans but really all of the Paul's writings and teachings they colored the way Protestants read and under Understand the scriptures. Just up front, does that ring true with anybody here that you kind of were taught that? Quite a few. Okay. So this really started with the Protestant Reformers. I mean, if you look at at some of the biblical commentaries from folks like Luther, Calvin, Wesley, um, they produced stacks of writings on the Apostle Paul. Thousands of pages dissecting Paul's language, systematizing his thought. But when you get then to the Gospels, they really didn't have a lot to say about just in sheer number of words that they wrote. They had tons to say about Paul, very little to say about the Gospels, and even less to say about the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. And the, the problem is that if we read the whole Bible through this lens of Paul, it will distort our understanding, our reading, to the point that we can actually miss some of the major themes of scripture we end up not only misinterpreting gospels and old testament but we we miss the genius of paul of paul's work as well in particular the the pauline lens what it does to us is it tends to sort of shrink the gospel down to what dallas willard liked to call a gospel of sin management that's what he would call it just basic instructions on how to get into heaven when you die which is a really bad way to read the scripture And that's not the gospel, and it's not even what the Apostle Paul was preaching about either. And and I think many of the problems that we see in American Christianity or American Protestantism, especially in evangelicalism, can be traced back to these distortions that stem from the way that they teach people to read the Bible through that Pauline lens. And so part of what I'm trying to do as a pastor is lead us in a different direction in terms of our approach to scripture, and, and I've been very influenced. This isn't my thinking so much as I've been influenced by a lot of scholars, not the least of which are a New Testament scholar named N.T. Wright and an Old Testament scholar named Walter Brueggemann, who I highly recommend if you want to read. They re- write stuff for just um, regular folks, not just like theologians. Um, but, but they have a different approach, and I've kind of adapted it in our situation. And this approach really puts the Sermon on the Mount at the center. Um, as the, the longest and most complete teaching of Jesus. You can also do Sermon on the Plain and the farewell Discourse. You can lump them together, but Sermon on the Mount just makes it easy. Um, that's where we begin with this kind of the revolutionary heart of Christ's teaching. And then we root that in all four of the Gospels. And so we spend much of our year in the four Gospels, just saturating our, our minds with the words and actions of Christ. Now, here's the twist. Up to there, it's pretty normal. Here's the twist. I think the next move we make is not to go then to Paul and his writings or to Revelation or to really the rest of the New Testament. I I think we begin with that Sermon on the Mount. We kind of embed it in the Gospels as the heart of the New Testament. But in order to read both of those well, the next place we need to go, I think, is to the Bible Jesus read, the Torah, the writings, the Prophets the Hebrew Bible. I mean, it had a massive impact on Christ's worldview and ministry. So, I mean, it just follows. If we want to understand what he was up to, what he was doing, and what he was teaching, we need to know the scriptures that shaped his imagination. And this is really, I think, the best way to approach the the Bible as Christians. Start, you know, the four Gospels are the, the center, the heart of them is the Sermon on the Mount. But if we want to even read them rightly, we need to read not through a big old Pauline lens, we need to read them in the context of the Bible that Jesus read. The Torah, the prophets, the writings. He quoted the prophets all the time. His education was to be steeped in in, in Torah. And and so we sort of hold the Bible Jesus read and the Gospels in, in each hand, and then we come back to the rest of the New Testament, the writings of Peter and James and John and the Apostle Paul. Only now we can read them in their proper context. And this makes us what what we might call, what is often called, canonical readers. Have you heard that term ever? Canonical readers. It just comes from the word canon. So all this means is that when you read any one part of the Bible, you try to read it in the context of the whole thing. Always reaching for all of it when you interpret any little part. That's canonical reading. And the advantage of this approach is that it gives us a much fuller and deeper understanding of the gospel itself, that it's not just about how to get into heaven when we die. It's about all of life, that God is making all things new again through Christ. It's it's about God reconciling humanity back to God, but also to each other. And to ourselves and to the world that God is using this reconciliation, to move all of creation toward um, what they call in the Old Testament, Shalom, peace. Not just absence of war, but Shalom means everything that is in its rightful place, doing what it's intended to do, and then thereby relating rightly to everything else that is, so that all of it can, can be flourishing. Jesus was animated by that. That's the gospel that he, he was animated by that pursuit of this holistic reconciliation and will be satisfied with nothing short of this. And this understanding, it only comes, it doesn't come through the Pauline lens. It only comes if it's, it's rooted in the Hebrew Bible. Christ's understanding was obviously rooted in the Hebrew Bible. There, there was no New Testament at the time of Christ. And so, I think it's essential for us, if we want to get in on what what God is doing through the church and through Christ, to study the Bible that shaped Jesus' imagination. And so, that's why we we try to spend about half the year in the Hebrew um, scriptures. Usually, most, if not all, of the summer, we'll study the Old Testament. Um, And in the past, we've done a lot of different stuff. We worked through the first five books, the Torah, all in one, one go. We did one year on the life of King David, the book of Nehemiah, Ruth. Um, Two years ago we did Genesis, last year we did Exodus, and this year we're going to study the book of Leviticus. Yeah, I know you've been dying to do this, so hold on to your hats. We're going to spend the rest of the summer reading the book of Leviticus, which I know was probably not on your list of things you were going to try to get accomplished this summer, but... It's on mine. Um, Quick show of hands. How many of you have read the entire book of Leviticus in the last five years? Raise your hands high. Okay. Yeah. So so most of us, if we're honest, have never read Leviticus. Unless it was one of those like read the Bible all the way through things. And then we just kind of, I mean, we read Leviticus, (laughs) right? And, And even if you have read it, you probably don't remember any of it. I mean, we would be hard-pressed to come up with quotes from the book of Leviticus, except for there's one from Leviticus 18. I love it. It's a common tattoo. Leviticus 18, 29, I think it's the the proscription against getting tattoos. People get it tattooed on their arm, which I think is hilarious. Um, But Leviticus is, I mean, for Christians, it's probably the most neglected of all biblical books, right up there with Numbers. Numbers is pretty—I think Numbers is worse, actually—but but this is, yeah, amen. Yeah, see, I read my Bible, um, which is which is tragic because it's actually way better than you think. And Leviticus is foundational for many of the the greatest themes and and biggest concerns of the scriptures. Ever heard the phrase, love your neighbor as yourself? It comes from Leviticus 19. It's the first time it appears in the Bible. It's just one of many things that are like that. It has their, it's, it's on the tips of our tongues, but we don't know even that it's rooted here in Leviticus. The problem, though, is that Leviticus is really hard to read. It's, it's strange. Especially for a bunch of Protestants who spent their life reading the whole scripture through the lens of Paul. It's just a cursory reading of Leviticus. It's, it's just going to annoy you, I promise. It will just confuse you. All the symbolism, the deeper meanings, it mostly just flies right over our, our heads. And it's different than what we've been doing the last couple of summers. You know, Genesis and Exodus, they're narratives, they're stories. You can follow them, right? You, can, you might interpret them wrongly or or whatever but they they have characters who do actions right and this is familiar to us there there are people having children and living and dying and chasing their dreams and traveling from one place to another and and dealing with conflicts and facing down problems and all of it is rooted in this this interaction with this strange god Yahweh who is nothing like all the other gods like that a cursory reading it kind of makes sense to us but it's, Leviticus isn't like that. It, it reads like a priestly instruction manual and like with these detailed instructions on managing sacrifices and offerings and, 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 and so unless you, unless you grew up reading it, a cursory reading will just it's just going to confuse you and, and, and bore all of us because it reads like a bunch of arcane. Religious practices, a bunch of laws we don't keep and a bunch of practices we don't do anymore. But if you really dig into it in the book of Leviticus and and root the reading of it in the whole context of, of the Bible, what you'll find is that Leviticus is actually about all of the things that you and I worry about each and every day. Will there be enough food for everybody In the world? Does everyone have a home to live in or are some people homeless? And what should we do about things like that? Does everybody have a way to make a living? And how is the wealth distributed among society? Are a bunch of people in financial debt and how long do we let that go before we step in? Are we stewarding the earth or exploiting creation and damaging it? How do we deal justly with immigrants, refugees? How do we establish social justice? How do we see it? What is it? What do we do with a wicked ruler? How do we resolve conflicts with our neighbors? How do we make amends when we hurt one another? What do we do about violence or when people lie and steal and cheat? How do we pass on our faith to our children? How should we lead a church? Who should lead a church? Who should lead a society? And what makes for a good leader, and, and, and what do we, how do we decide Like the general direction of where we're going as a society, society? It's about all those things. On the surface, Leviticus seems to be about these really obscure religious practices, but in fact, it's about very ordinary questions of how to live our lives that you and I face all the time. Now, if you were part of the Jewish tradition, you would already know this. Um, every Jewish synagogue on the planet, almost without exception, spends 10 weeks out of every year focusing on the book of Leviticus. Like one-fifth of each year, the synagogue services are built around Leviticus. And so they know how to read it in, in such a way that they can discern its relevance, really, and its, even its importance. In, in fact, the very way that the Torah is Structured points to the central importance of Leviticus um, in terms of just the, the themes and, and the, the message of it. Um, in biblical books, you know, the way they arrange them often carries, the way they're structured, carries a lot of the meaning. Structure is part of the message. It tells you how to read and how to understand things. It's different for, like in Western civilization, if you think about like writings and narratives and how we tell stories, how things are typically ordered, we tend toward one of two approaches, um, either uh, one is um, we put the, the most important stuff up front, like the, we, this is where we get the sayings, first things first, right, you, you know something's important if it's the first thing they tell you, for instance, like in journalism, there's this principle of journalism, they say don't bury the lead, L-E-D-E, that's the, how it's spelled, and then a lead, L-E-D-E, is, is like the most important idea in the story, so every newspaper article has a lead, a central point, and they say don't bury the lead, which means don't hide the central por- point down in the, in the middle of the story where people can miss it. Put it right up front, like put it in the first sentence, the first paragraph. That's the basic structure of journalism. It's why you can like flip through the paper and just read the first paragraphs and the headlines and get the gist of things if you're in a hurry. In other forms of writing... It's kind of the opposite. So like novels, screenplays, other narrative storytelling, especially in music or musical performances, they'll put the most important thing at the end. It's where we get the phrase, save the best for last. Um, And if you want people sticking around to the end, you'll structure the most important aspect as kind of the last big move of the telling. And the whole narrative builds for that big reveal. It's the idea of like the grand finale which is a staple for live music, by the way, especially if you ever see a band that only has like maybe one big song <laughs> and then they make you suffer through this just hours of material you're like, Meh. And they, you're just waiting for that one, one big song and they'll play it. They won't even play it till, till like the encore. I don't know if anybody's fr- fans of the band, um, the Black Crows. Anybody like the Black Crows? This dates me, 90s music. It's just my jam, sorry. Um, I mean, I've seen them a bunch of times and they, they really only have one hit that everybody knows. She talks to angels, right? So it's a, it's a huge song. But, and they're famous for this. They will not play this song in the, in the regular part of the, their show. They will only play it in the encore, usually as the very last song. In fact, Chris and I made Kristen go to me one, go with me one time to um, to the uptown theater and we saw black crows loudest concert i've ever heard in my life like i like it loud it was terrible it was t- way too loud Kristen's like let's go let's get out here i'm like she talks to the angels man they played it at the end we, we stayed till the end and then they didn't play it all night yeah it was it was a quiet ride home except for <laughs> except for the ringing in our ears from black crows yeah they buried the lead you might say but in our world, this is how it goes. The most important stuff is either right up front or, or saved for the very end. But to the Hebrew mind, the most important thing is always found at the center. This is how they structure stuff. So that, that's how they structure the scriptures. The most important thing is right at the center. It's called a concentric structure. It just means around the center. And so this is part of how we have to look at, at, at the text. Um, if you think about it, you know, the heart of the Bible Jesus read was the Torah. For us, it's the first five books of the Bible. For them, it's five scrolls. That's how they think of it. They were five scrolls. And the outer edges of these five scrolls are Genesis and Deuteronomy. Genesis is like a prologue to the Exodus narrative. The Exodus narrative, is the cent- it's the central story for the children of Israel and for the Hebrew people. And it kind of ends, Genesis ends with, if you remember, the patriarch, Jacob, blessing the 12 tribes. And then on the other end of the Torah, you've got Deuteronomy. They're both the longest uh, of the books. Deuteronomy is like an epilogue, where Genesis is a prologue. It's like an epilogue. It ends with this really long speech by Moses. And then it ends kind of in this bookend way, another patriarch, Moses, blessing the 12 tribes of Israel. So there's this symmetry on on the edges of the Torah. And then the next level in are the scrolls of Exodus and Numbers. They're almost exactly the same length, 16,000 words and change, each of them. Exodus is about leaving Egypt and building the tabernacle. Numbers is about dedicating the tabernacle and then leaving wilderness. So there's symmetry there as well. And then at the center is Leviticus at the center of the Torah, the place of highest importance. It's the shortest scroll. It's only 12,000 words plus a few. And at the center of the scroll of Leviticus, the center of the center, in our Bible it's around chapter 16, but of course they didn't, they had scrolls, not, not books. So the actual center of the scroll are the instructions for the Day of Atonement or um, what now is called Yom Kippur. And the center of the section on Yom Kippur are the the actual priestly rites of atonement. So the heart of the Hebrew scriptures is Torah. The center of the Torah is the scroll of Leviticus. The center of Leviticus is the day of atonement, and the center of the day of atonement are these, these rites of atonement. None of this is by accident. The their arrangement, the, the structure is telling us the central idea of this whole thing is about atonement. All right, atonement's one of those things that we read through a Pauline lens. So we're gonna have to mess with it this summer. This can be good. Um, let's talk about this word just a little bit. What, what, are, we, what are we talking about when we say atonement. So the word atonement actually has a really interesting history. So the original Hebrew Bible was written obviously in Hebrew. But by the time of Christ, most of the Hebrew people lived in the Greek-speaking world. And so they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek. Um, It's called the Septuagint. It's just a a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And this is likely what most of the Jews in Jesus' day read. It's a Greek text. Then, um, fast forward a few centuries, 328 AD. Saint Jerome translated the Bible into Latin. It's called the Vulgate. Sometimes vulgar, it's the common tongue, right? Um, and this became the Latin. The Vulgate became the, the most popular scripture in the West for a thousand years or more. None of these versions of the Bible use the word atonement. The word wasn't even invented yet with these for, I mean, we're talking thousands of years here. Okay, so let's look real quick at the words that they did use. In the Hebrew Bible, the original word is kafar. Say that with me. Kafar. All right, so kafar in a literal sense meant to coat something with pitch and with, with sap. So like this is what they, God told Moses to do to make the ark waterproof, um, it was to cover over the gaps and rips or holes in something, a, a way to repair a breach or a tear. But over time, this began to be used to to talk about a relational act of appeasement, a way of repairing a breach in a relationship by making amends. That's kafar. Then in the Septuagint, the Greek word they use, there's a couple, but kind of the central one um, is helaskomai. Say helaskomai. <laughs> this, this is meant... Um, to, to signify making amends of some kind, um, repairing a or But it has this idea of um, placating or conciliation that's kind of connoted in there. And s- sometimes it's um, translated propitiation, which is more of a kind of a religious word. And then in the Latin, the word is um, expiatio, say that. Expiazio. only got to put some Italian stank on it, you know, like expiatio. Try that, Expiazio. Yeah, that was terrible. But so expiatio, similar concept, but it means to blot, blot out something, to blot it out, to to give satisfaction. That's connoted in there, well, in, in there too. But satisfaction through through blotting out or removing a, a guilt. Okay, so these were the three, three options for a couple thousand years. Until 1530, when this guy named William Tyndale was translating the Bible into English for the first time, Tyndale needed an English word that would kind of do justice to these three words that the church had been using for a long, long time, and he couldn't find an English word that would do it. And so what he did is make up a new word. In his time, there were two common phrases in the Old English. Um, one was, at, at, at one, they, would just, they didn't do contractions back then, but they would do mashups, so, at and one were mashed together at one. Later it would become atone, but now it's, it's just at one. And then there was another phrase, one meant, like it meant agreement coming back together. So, at one and one meant. He took these two phrases and, and just made a Franken word, like just stuck it together. Atonement, which is really at one meant. Atonement means at one meant. And it literally means that it was made up to mean that. And this is this English rendering of the central doctrine that stems from the center of the Torah, which is Leviticus and the central day of atonement at one And it, of course, is a huge doctrine in Christianity. And it's had a huge Impact on the, the Jewish-speaking world and the, the Hebrew people as well. In fact, they call in the modern par- parlance Yom Kippur. Um, Kippur it comes from Kafar, same same root. They call Yom Kippur the Day of Atonement. They adopted this word in because they thought it actually it actually gets gets to Leviticus really well. They accepted this word and as capturing this central. So at the heart of the Torah is Leviticus. At the center of Leviticus is this relational concept at-one-ment. Making amends, reconciling, repairing a breach. Okay, now now let's try to root this here at the beginning of Leviticus. Let's root this idea of atonement in the narrative itself. So the book of Leviticus begins like this. This is Leviticus 1.1. The Lord called To Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. And the word um, for called there in Hebrew is Va'ikra. Say Va'ikra. Va'ikra. So this is actually the Jewish name for the book of Leviticus. To name their books, they just use the first, most important word in the first line uh, as as the name. So if you picked up a Hebrew Bible, this um, this book we would call Leviticus would be titled Va'ikra. Because the Lord called to Moses from the tent of meeting. So Leviticus begins with Moses standing in front of the tabernacle and the voice of God calling out, crying out to Moses, Vayikra, from inside the tent. And so there's a sense in which, if you remember back to last summer, Leviticus just picks up right where Exodus Left off, The children of Israel, if you remember the story, the children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, Pharaoh making their lives miserable with hard labor, and God at that time seemed completely absent from God's people. They had, they had no place to worship. They had no Hebrew prayers, no Hebrew liturgy, no Hebrew scripture. They had, there was no Hebrew religion yet. At that time in history and God was silent to these slaves in Egypt God was absent nowhere to be found and the story goes they cried out to God under the lash calling out for help and God Yahweh heard their cry right and calls Moses to lead them out of Egypt comes, delivers them from the hand of Pharaoh, led them into the wilderness, fed them with manna, and then God made this covenant with them, said, you're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. And, and then God gave them the Ten Commandments, sort of basic instructions for how to relate to God and to one another, just these kind of simple things that they could begin to remember. And then Exodus culminated in the building of the tabernacle, um, Mishkan, a tent of meeting, a, a place where they could come together and meet with God. There's chapters and chapters on how to, how to um, build this in very particular ways that would reflect um, their cosmology and their ideas of God. And then they build it <clears throat> and this pillar of cloud comes down and descends on, on the tabernacle filling the tent of meeting with the presence of God. And day they could see the pillar of cloud at night it would light up and crackle and pop with the fire of God's presence. And then God had them Arranged the whole camp of the Hebrew people all in a circle all around the tabernacle. So every, anywhere you went in camp, you'd be facing toward the presence and you could know God is present with, with the people. But then Exodus ends, we read it earlier, in this really strange way. It says, um, This is Exodus 40, then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The whole point of the tent of meeting was to have a place where they could go to be with God, to meet with God in the desert. And here Moses can't even enter the tent because this cloud has settled on it. It's kind of a symbolic way of saying it. like the, the presence of God here is too much for Moses. He can't handle it. It's too thick. He couldn't enter. He had to stand outside the tent of meeting, which is not what it was for. So you, so you think about it. The, the Exodus story begins with a God who is absent and a people crying out to God, calling for help. And then Exodus ends with a God who is present and a Moses who is absent, and then God is crying out, calling out to the people. It's, it's weird juxtaposition. And so Exodus begins, or ends. I'm sorry, ends with God present at the center of the camp of the people, and Moses is absent. He's, he's outside the tent of meeting, and God is calling out to Moses. Vaikra from inside the tent but Moses can't go in he's overwhelmed in a sense by the nearness of God filled with anxiety and fear at the over proximity of God and this is is where the story of Exodus their biggest story ends and then then you close the scroll you set it aside and you pick up the center scroll hands trembling because this is the big one and you open it up And you find the first line reading right to left. And the first word is Vaikra. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Just as the Hebrew people had called out to God. Now God calls out. And what is then created after this moment, what is created in the rest of the book of Leviticus is in essence a new Hebrew religion. God will lead them to build this structure that will help this primitive people begin to order their lives in such a way that they can begin to welcome God's presence at the center of the camp without fear that they're going to be overwhelmed or destroyed by it. When I mean, you think about it, this is kind of lays bare one of the central reasons for the creation of religion in the first place. All human religions are like this. We're all sort of like Moses, somewhat overwhelmed by the thought of a God who draws near, right? This makes us afraid. A God who knows us, has made us, sustains us, is present to us. This can feel so overwhelming. And so we create our religions in part to hold this God at a safe distance. Until we can... Find a way to approach this God and, and not be undone. We'll talk a lot more about this as we go, but I, I think what we're going to learn throughout the summer is that um, the, the bizarre strangeness of Leviticus, the sacrifices and offerings and rituals, the, the hygiene laws and dietary restrictions, the complexities of the Jewish religion, we're going to learn these things are, are not actually for God. They're for us, they're in this instance, for the, for the people. They work on us. They are, they're God's way of helping this fearful and anxious people to soften into the presence of a God that they will learn actually loves them. By, by just walking God's people slowly into an experience of atonement at one minute removing the guilt, repairing the breach, reconciling humanity with God and each other, and even with ourselves and the, the world around us, God is going to begin to restore these relationships, reconcile these people to God, self, other, and world in all four directions. And, and this is the center of the Torah, the center of Leviticus. But this is how Leviticus begins. God has moved into the center of the camp, but the people are afraid to go in and meet with God. So God's going to have to work with them through the creation of uh, and direction of this this new Hebrew religion, the Jewish faith, to help them find their way back to God. And so here's my hope for all of us this summer, is that I, I hope that we will begin to see the ways in which we all use religion to keep God at a safe distance. We all do this, and it's okay. In part, this is why God allows the creation of religions and helps with them. But at the same time, we need to think about the fact that the the way we've, we need to consider that the way we've structured our own lives personally and as a community, as a society, even politically, is at least in part to hold God at a safe distance, the the sometimes frightening and overwhelming nearness of God. We're trying to keep that at bay. And we need to ask ourselves, why? Why do we do this? And yet all the the time, we're also just filled with this sense of longing to be in the presence of God, to know God and be known by God, and, and to be reconciled to God and and self, and each other, and, and the world around us—we're longing for a way back into the presence of God and into some kind of at-onement with each other. And so, so my prayer is this summer, as we study Leviticus, that God will vaikra, God will call to us from the center of the uh, of our life, from the tent of meeting inside the tent, and and that we'll have the courage to draw near. And try to find that at one with God's self, other, and creation. And begin to live all of our life, even our just common, very ordinary days, and all those lists of concerns that we talked about. To live those things out in the presence of a God who loves us. That's what we're after. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for um, the Torah, for the Bible Jesus read, and for a chance to try to dig into it and read from it. And we pray, God, that you would um, open our eyes to see um, what you're doing in this text over the next few months and weeks. And I pray that the strangeness of it would not turn us off but that, would we, that we would um, get into the spirit of it and just kind of dig deep down into the symbols and all the um, thousands of years of history. And um, this morning, as we just think about that moment, that close of Exodus, beginning of Leviticus, with Moses standing outside the tent, and we know this feeling, this feeling of longing to have a sense of your presence But this fear, God, of what you might do if you get too close. And this is our confession. This is where we live. And so help us to be brave, to chase after you this summer as we read Vayikra, Leviticus. Call out to us, we ask. Amen. If you would stand, please. Um, We're going to receive communion now. Um, and the, the way that we do this is the ushers will just come forward and release us row by row and you'll be offered a plate of bread and a cup. Just take a piece of bread and dip it in the cup and receive it. And they'll say to you, remember the body and blood of Christ. And you can answer just however you're comfortable. Say amen or, or whatever you're used to saying. I will remember. Or And the reason that we do this is that on the night when Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread and broke it. He passed it around to his his followers and he said this is my body broken for you do this in remembrance of me and then in the same way after supper he took the cup and and this one common cup they pass it around and all drank for it from it and he said this cup is a new covenant a new deal a new relationship in my blood blood meant life a new a new deal between humanity and god and even between you guys that's established with my body, with my blood. And he said, every time you get together, like in this symbolic way, eat eat my body, drink my blood. It's kind of gross at the time. It still is if you think about it too much. But it was just saying, take my life into your life. Be made out of the stuff I'm made out of. And then go out into the world and be the hands and feet of Christ. This is is why we do it. He said, every time you get together, just just do this to remind you who you are and what you're about in the world. This is also why we, we just don't set limits. Anybody who calls on the name of Christ is welcome to join us at the table. So if you would join me in praying a blessing on it. Lord, we ask your blessing upon this bread and this cup. May it be to us a means of your grace and a spiritual food and drink. And as we receive it into our bodies, may we receive you once again. Come and live inside each of us. Make us new from the inside out and then send us out into the world to be salt and light and let the world feast on us and taste and see your goodness. All to the glory of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit. One God, now and forever. Amen. Will you come?
2: with the spirit.
4: this morning and um, just a reminder I know we've been talking about this what seems like forever but it's actually happening and newcomers um, meeting are going to be on next Sunday the 26th and July 10th, 5 to 7 p.m. you can register for it online and um, it's not too late uh, by any means and if you have children that need child care that day We are offering that but we ask that you would register so we know who to plan for um, also As I announced last week our annual baptism and church picnic is coming up in July also July 17th We will not be here at the building that day. We will be at Lake Olathe on their beach for the baptism and their um, shelter for our picnic if you or someone you know wants to be baptized that day, please uh, drop me a note or um, just come find me after church any time between now and then, and we'll make sure to include you. And then I'm, I'm still looking for people to help with the picnic that day. So the same thing, if if you could drop me an email or find me, that, that would be fantastic. Uh, Mandy wanted me to let you know that if you're a regular volunteer for the food pantry or you'd like to help, in July, it's coming up July 2nd. That's a holiday weekend with the Fourth of July. But she wants you to know that it is happening. And then, last thing is, soccer camp starts tomorrow, you guys. Um, so hopefully, your kids are coming to join us. And I know we have a bunch of volunteers. Uh, volunteers, be here at 9:30 tomorrow morning, and it'll be a great week.
0: Gonna be good. If you have any time, free time between um, what 10 and noon this week, and want to come, just sweat your socks off. You just come right ahead and hang out with kids from our church and a lot of kids from the neighborhood. It's gonna be good. So I don't know if this is on. So I'm gonna grab this. Um, <clears throat> if you would stand and, and receive this benediction, just, before we go, I'll just say, just remind you about the newcomers thing next week. If you are new here or if you're new and you've already been to the newcomers' um, meetings once but want to come back, anybody's welcome. So I think I've said our, our record is three times somebody has been a newcomer. So come as, as much as you want. It's a, it's a great conversation, and I um, hope to see you there. If you would just hold your hands out um, in front of you just with palms up in this posture of receptivity. Bow your heads for a moment. Just be still for a second here. As we think about the story of the children of Israel in the wilderness, this tabernacle and this fearful presence of God, we open our hands up in this posture of receptivity. This is the posture we hope to have as we set out to learn from Leviticus, May we maintain this openness to God. May we hear the vaikra, the call, and sense this at one minute It's waiting. And on the way, may the Lord bless you and keep you, Redemption Church. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you always his peace. Amen. Go in peace, everyone.